Rashford is now the Prime Minister and the Premier League all of a sudden seems to have become a not-for-profit, providing major cash windfalls for the lower leagues. Thankfully someone's seen the bigger picture, eh? It's all a bit Cyril Sneer, Raccoons, season 1-4, to four. and if you're one of the youngins listening to this podcast, ask your dad. It's the last week of October and the first episode in our mini-series. How many years are in October, by the way? Seems like time's just dragging on at the moment and a bit all over the place. Football seasons that were due to end in May ended in June and July, and most European domestic campaigns got under the way after a short break, and here we are with um, those seasons, only just in their infancy in October, uh, and already playing Champions League games. I don't know about you, but uh, watching some of the fixtures across the weekend, you start to get the feeling that the players' fitness uh, isn't quite there after such a stop-start couple of months, some very sluggish and dubious defending, to say the least. We'll not mention any names because we've got a little bit to uh, press on with today. Now, of course, the world's still ravaged by COVID and various lockdown approaches all around the globe. Here in Australia, sports returned in some states with fans attending stadiums in some parts of the country, as has been the case in certain countries across the globe. For those that haven't, how long until games are showed in cinemas? Hmm. Well, have the last few months not been a melee? Life has been a bit of a bubble at times, hasn't it? Certainly the case where I am due to recent lockdown restrictions that we've been experiencing. It's been easy to stop short and only really think about the things that directly affect you and you alone when you're forced into that bubble, if I'm honest. And we're all a bit guilty of that from time to time, I reckon. More so when the news is really only focused on one thing. Uh, it's easy to think about how that one thing is, is impacting you and making changes on your life. For months here in Melbourne, we've not been allowed out of a, a literal bubble that, sp- that stretches a five kilometre radius from where you live. We've not gone into towns and cities to work or socialise. and Many of us have adapted to working from home. We certainly haven't been to the football. We certainly haven't watched any football, that's for sure. And overall, it's been equal parts bliss and equal parts a nightmare. One example is many of us don't have a commute to work to deal with, but We also don't have a commute to process the day and have a minute to ourselves to just switch on the radio and enjoy some music or listen to a football phone in or whatever it is we do on those journeys. Everyone is a sourdough starter expert amongst many other things and other talents we seem to have acquired. But we've also seen less of each other these past few months too. And many people have had more time with the kids, but homeschooling has been no picnic either from what people tell me. Now, what I wanted to avoid was this podcast being purely about how football has adapted due to coronavirus. The pandemic has been a huge game-changing event for us all, 100%, and for football too. So naturally, it does feature, but this week's topic is around a social issue that was here long before COVID, and sadly, is likely to be around after two, and that's homelessness. When we were spending more time in metropolitan areas, homelessness smacked us in the face a bit more than it does now. You know, people sat by the train station or in the square. It's easy at the moment for it to be out of sight, out of mind. In Australia, there was an initial fantastic response for the homeless community when the pandemic hit, and that was to put people up in hotels. Little did we know how long this thing would go on for, though, and eventually it becomes too much of an economic burden or challenge to continue such responses. Before I do go any further, 
because this story, the interview in this week's pod, it needs context for you to understand how powerful of a story it is. I'm just setting a context here. This episode is about homelessness, but it's also about how football has played a positive role in helping with that social issue, so keep with us. There's often a dilemma and a debate around giving money to homeless people. Some people don't because they assume it's going to go directly to booze or drugs. Some people are embarrassed, I think, that giving a few quid is far less than what they really could do. And they get confronted sometimes with having not done more in the past. It gets a bit too awkward and before you know it, you've walked past the homeless person, not giving them any money and you've turned your blind eye. People also jump to conclusions of why a person might be homeless too, often assuming it's their fault. And in a lot of cases, that's just not the truth. You know, it's hard to see how someone who was abused runs away from home with nothing and finds it hard to trust people for fear of being abused again and ends up on the streets. Someone who was, wasn't popular at school, maybe a little bit of a loner, moves away, goes it alone, falls into financial distress, ends up on the streets. Someone who comes from a poor, small family whose parents pass away, again, without much of a support network, you can see where that path might take them, unfortunately, to homelessness. Now, am I claiming I've never seen a drunk homeless person before? Definitely not. Am I pretending I've never reached for a beer after a bad day at work, though? No way, I'm not. But let's face it, if you made the choice for me between a bad day at work or even just one night being homeless, and you picked the latter for me and said you've got to spend a night on the streets or a night in a homeless shelter, I'd need more than a beer afterwards to sort of get through that and process it, if you know what I mean. So it is a big social issue, and thankfully the big issue here in Australia have used football as a vehicle for bringing positive experiences to the homeless community and also bringing down barriers between the homeless community and the community that you or I might live and exist in. Sport levels the playing field and I bet as a kid you played matches in more affluent areas than you were from and you might have been a better player than many of the opposition and I bet you played in perhaps poorer areas than where you were from and you got well hammered too in the middle of the park. Football's everyone's game, and this interview is a fantastic story that proves it. It's one of them, isn't it? When you see past surface-level differences, we connect with more people on a better and a deeper level, and we're richer for it. The story of George Halkias and what the big issue has accomplished is just astonishing. Imagine for a minute you've participated, volunteered at, coached in a form of World Cup football. Imagine going to such a tournament. Imagine waiting to board the plane and how excited you would be for that experience. Imagine how proud you'd be afterwards. Well, that's what these guys at The Big Issue have done. They've taken the nation to a World Cup. And that is through being accepting, inclusive, compassionate and empathetic to people perhaps less fortunate than ourselves. So here it is, George from The Big Issue sharing the story of the Street Soccer Initiative and more. Nice to speak with you, George. How are things? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Staying positive, optimistic, energetic. Let's uh, keep the pessimism and <laughs> the negativity that abounds uh, at this time to a minimum. It's uh, you know what I mean. Easy to get into that spiral at the moment, especially if football's such a big part of your life and you're not necessarily managing to socialise with people, or if you're probably more on the coaching side of the game and sort of. You know, fulfil that 
personality purpose that you've got to help people. It, it can be tricky, can't it? Yes, indeed. But uh, you probably know, being in the football world too, there's often a lot of negativity that abounds, particularly Australian football. <laughs> yes. So I'm not, yeah, I try not to get caught up in all that because it can bring you bring you down. And uh, yeah, people also have their own agendas. But keep it positive. Find the positive. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely, I definitely agree with that. And there is stuff to be positive about. I mean, I've heard footballers at the top level say, I think it was Ben Mee, who um, was the Burnley captain, who said, yeah, it is a little bit hard now not playing with yeah. fans. You can't get up up for it in the same way. Um, yeah. It's interesting really having football without fans at the moment, isn't it? I mean, if you are a fan of the European leagues, to me, it's felt like a level leveling of the playing field. You know, I miss going to the games, and it is a little bit sad that the people can't get to them as well. But I sort of feel like I'm back in a global community of watching football now because we're all at home. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, gotcha. Yeah. Well, we start again on Saturday night after Liverpool supporters yourself. I'm a Manchester City fan, so you're the you're the champions defending then. <laughs> yeah. Well. I don't know if you know, I also work at Melbourne City, so um, I have a connection to Man City, but when I had meetings and Zoom calls, I had to take me Liverpool stuff off and uh, <laughs> just, okay. you know, just pretend, you know, the uh, the parent club, all that sort of stuff, but it's all good. Well, I, <laughs> I was up until restrictions took place, coaching your goalkeeping coach's son. So Oops, go sorry, just dropped out. I was, up until the restrictions kicked in, I was coaching your goalkeeping coach's son. So Thomas Sorensen's the goalkeeping oh. coach there, isn't he? Uh, no, I think he, he does some other stuff at the club, but oh, okay. he was obviously played there for, yeah, goalkeeping coach is uh, Neil Young, oh, okay. I think, and, and also Peter Zoist. Uh, Thomas okay. Sorensen, yeah, he played and, yeah. Uh, okay, he must be involved with some other, in other capacity there. But yeah, like he's... you're coaching Thomas Sorensen's son, he's, He's a good fellow, Thomas, and uh, he only played 500 uh, Premier League games or whatever he played. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And how many caps for Denton Mark, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. We can talk footy all day, you and I, I suspect. <laughs> I imagine so, I imagine so. Of course, we obviously want to talk about, um, yeah, your programme, um, which has really, yep. really piqued my interest. So, yeah, first of all, thanks yep. for giving us some time to have a chat about this. It's you know, from from my point of view, and I've done you know coaching at grassroots levels and things like that. It is super inspirational, um, and I have to say, you know, very selfless to kind of go down this path and do something like this because most coaches, for me, seem to be a combination of wanting to give back to the community, but do really have that um, you know desire to win there as well, um, yep. and really sort of work towards something. And I know you've probably had that opportunity with some of the homeless world. Some we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on, but yeah, yeah, I'll fill you in on uh, my ethos. And but obviously, my background's a little bit different now, program's different, but uh, I'm pretty super competitive deep down. Sometimes have to, you know, manage expectations and think about the goals of what we're trying to achieve and all that sort of stuff. But we can talk about that, yeah, look forward to it. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess, really, I'd, I'd just love to go back to the start and, and you know, really understand and get some yep. insight into you know, how did this come to be and why did this come to be and, and what really sort of drove you in this direction because it's as much the story of the organisation um, as, as it is your story yeah. as well because obviously you're a huge part of it. Sure. 
are we off and running? Is the uh, yeah. referee blown its whistle? Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, look, uh, I'm actually trained in psychology and got postgraduate uh, qualifications, but have had a lot of football, played football and various other sports. But um, I arrived at the big issue not-for-profit community organisation, charity, call it social enterprise, call it what you will, in 2004 to manage a, a different project that basically took the magazine that sold on the streets of uh, capital cities to regional areas, knowing that, um, for those who aren't familiar, the, the magazine is sold by homeless and disadvantaged people as a, as a way of connecting and, and also earning some extra income. And uh, It was around August that I arrived in 2004, and you might recall that um, that was when... Greece had won the Euros, being from a Greek background. Mm. Um, the big issue was actually in Longsdale Street, and then uh, I'd started that day, I think, after they'd won it. And one of the staff members, there was a lot of talk about football in the um, in the office, and my ears pricked, and you wouldn't believe it, but there was... Uh, and back then, we had fax machines. <laughs> there was a fax come through from what's called the Homeless World Cup, inviting us as the big issue organisation to... Um, participate in the 2005 Homeless World Cup. Um, and so people were scratching their heads thinking, geez, what's that all about? And talking football. And so I sort of crept up and overheard others and, and started sort of showing interest. And essentially, um, around the world, there are organisations like The Big Issue who produce these street papers, and they belong to a network of all the organisations. And they have a conference every year called the International Network of Street Papers Conference. And one year they... I think it took place at the bar. They were talking about how to engage the vendors, the people that sell the magazine. And, and the one thing that came up was that, you know, they, they don't all speak the common language. Um, but probably a few more beers and, and a bit more of a discussion, they probably said the only language that they'd all speak was football. Mm. And so there was a sort of discussion about the power of football, but also at this conference whether, you know, the organisations, and they were predominantly from Europe, could bring a team of their vendors to play in a football competition, and they called it the Homeless World Cup. So, you know, a bit of research and, you know, we found out that we were invited to participate in 2005 and uh, the then editor of the magazine, Martin Hughes, had, had asked me as a keen football person if we wanted to start a pilot. Um, and, yeah, I put my hand up and uh, we started running uh, an informal kickabout at one of the public housing estates in Fitzroy. So every Wednesday for two hours we'd get vendors and invite people experiencing homelessness, mental health issues substance abuse, disability and the like, to come and have a kick. And so, you know, that was, as I said, mid-2004. Um, we started as a bit of a pilot and just kept seeing the benefits to the participants. And what is it now? 17 years later, we've been to the Homeless World Cup on 10 occasions. We're a national program that, you know, we've, you know, we've got a, a real structure about us and um, hopefully we're kicking goals and improving the lives of those disadvantaged people we're engaging. So... That's, that's the story in a nutshell and how I got involved and, um, yeah, very lucky to have uh, been on that journey and hopefully there's better times and, and lots more goals ahead too. Yeah, wow. So so what has it grown to now then? You must have a whole army of coaches and how many how many yep, so people might play any one year through? Yeah, on a given week it will vary. Um, you know, we could have up to 500 people playing across the country. So in each of the capital cities, some regional areas, um, some indigenous communities. Um, but again, two hours of the week, people come to, you know, um, get physical activity, enjoy the beautiful game. But more importantly, too, they get the sense of connection 
um, the mentoring that they get from their coaches and their peers. And there's a real focus because we're funded by the Federal Government Department of Health to share information and promotion around health and well-being. So, yep. you know, we sit a lot in those two hours and, um, you know, it's the one thing that they look forward to and it's constant in their week. Um, and so, yeah, it can, it can really mean a lot to players to have that connection to community, but uh, also to, to be able to improve their health through, you know, the motivation and the inspiration that many of our coaches provide. Yeah, I spoke to the guys at One Culture in Adelaide um, and they provide yep. sessions. They're a not-for-profit, I think, for um, disabled participants that might not be able to get access to the club. And they told me a similar story of how you evolve from being simply a coach to so many other things, you know, confidant, mentor, friend, um, you know, sounding board. And it, it sounds like you've got something very similar going uh, as well in terms of the roles that the coaches play by the sounds of it. Yeah, I'm familiar with the work that they do. It's awesome. And, um, yeah, look, the role of a coach um, at one of these programs is so diverse. So, I mean, football is, you know, in all honesty, not number one, but we we got people who are involved in football at, at all levels, and we had a coach who had an AS licence at, you know, at one stage who coached at a very high level. But, um, you know, we're dealing with vulnerable people. We're dealing with a range of people who have a whole range of cultural backgrounds, both genders, um, mm. different traumas in their life, um, disabilities. I don't think you could get a more diverse group of people playing football or sport in the world than what you get when we get into one of our programs. And so the coaches, the skills that they need to be a facilitator, to be instructor, um, to, like you said, a confidant, a mentor, sometimes a disciplinarian. <laughs> um, so you need so many different skills to be able to deliver that. And for me, they're probably skills that everyone in, in football and coaching community would, would want to have because, again, you know, we want to get the football outcomes, but at the same time, a community, we want to see growth in individuals. We want to see them mature. You know, for coaching kids, we know that they present with different issues and it's about learning. Um, so there, there is a great challenge in being a coach in these programs, but you learn so much and probably highlights that, you know, when we talk about coaches in sport, they, they really need to have a range of different backgrounds, um, but, you know, learning all the time on the job as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. With that, I guess because you've got a very inclusive program with such diverse backgrounds um, in terms of where people have come from, but probably their playing abilities as well. I'm sure their motivations for coming along are, are part to play and compete, part to, to socialise. How do you have to provoke uh, approach that in terms of striking the balance between technical coaching and, um, yeah. I, I guess, I guess coaching for fun and coaching for participation? in such a diverse group. Yeah. It is. You can have, uh, you know, people from asylum seeker, refugee backgrounds who have lived and breathed the sport and have been, you know, brought up on the sport and they're, they're highly skilled. And you can get people who are novices who've never played the sport in their lives. You can get people with varying fitnesses. You can get, you know, people with varying levels of um, coordination and the like. And so to, to run a session that sort of, engages everybody, stimulates everybody, um, challenges everybody and brings everyone together can be a little bit tricky, but I guess paramount to, to what we're doing is really about the inclusion. And, and sometimes if you know your drills and activities don't go to plan, I think people understand that it's hard to tailor all needs. Um, but you know, I think people come from in so many different ways. They come for the football, but at the same time, they, they know that everything else is probably even more important. So. Our coaches are very skilled at trying to create an energetic, 
um, safe environment, but at the same time try and help people improve their football ability. Um, sometimes we use the more skilled players to mentor those who are just starting off. Um, we know that there's different levels of fitness, so you don't always want to push people too hard if they're not, you know, ready or, you know, all that sort of stuff. So um, it's really about striking that balance, but the ethos of the program is the one thing that we need driven in that, you know, we want to create a, a place where people enjoy the session, enjoy the game and learn from each other, and that's the most important thing. Yeah, definitely. Where do you find, or what do you find are people's, you know, initial reason for coming along is, and, and does that change? Are some people coming because exercise is, is good for you and is recommended, or socialisation is, or I, I love football and I've stumbled across this, this programme? What, what does the intake look like in terms of those drivers for participation? Mm. And, and, and I guess that evolves um, through a player's journey with you, right? Yeah, I guess it's a mixed bag. Um, we do try and connect and engage the different agencies and services out there, so mental health hospitals and drug and alcohol rehabs or refugee centres um, and support services. Anyone out there that's working with disadvantaged or people you know, facing challenges, we try and get them to be aware of what our program's about and um, understanding the benefits so that way they can try and highlight to the players you know, what the ethos of the program is. Um, but people come with different expectations at the same time. So as I said, people might come thinking, you know, they're going to, you know, play competitive football, or that they, you know, that the rest of the players there will have similar abilities. Whereas others might come and uh, they're unsure and uncertain about what to expect because they've never played the game before, and, and that might be, you know, a barrier to them participating. So, in some ways, everyone's journey is a little bit different. Um, we'll try and create, you know as much expectation and understanding of what to expect. Um, but we're reliant on people to, and workers particularly, to divulge, I guess, you know, the aims of the program. But it doesn't take long, I don't think, that players understand exactly the concept. Um, even those, I said, you know, might come with highly skilled backgrounds, sort of understand that, you know, they're not going to dribble around each and every play, understanding that everyone, you know, has different levels. But they'll see that what they'll get out of the program is, is something different. So um, we're, we're a little bit of everything to uh, everyone, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but that's not to say our, our coaches, like I said, are very highly skilled at trying to tap into different levels, different personalities, what people's needs might be, challenging people, giving people opportunities to be leaders, um, you know, people with disabilities that, that might need extra little bit of support. Um, so, you, you know, as I said, you couldn't have more respect for, for our coaches and the work that they do. And two hours doesn't seem a lot, but it's um, an enormous amount of time. And I think there's a Greek philosopher that once said that you can learn and discover, you know, more than, it, you know, in an hour of play, you can learn more about somebody by play rather than just a conversation. Mm. Um, showing my Greek background there, but you, you do <laughs> learn a lot through play, just the interactions, the emotions. Um, the different situations that you have to deal with, and, and we're no different. Yeah, I'm sure. The, the, in terms of you saying those players that might not have those expectations of you know dribbling around everybody you know at the first session or even beyond that, the standard yeah. um, in some parts of the group must be pretty good to go and compete at some form of a World Cup, right? What what what's, what standard are we talking here? Yeah, so I mean, the selection process from the Homeless World Cup is probably one of the most challenging ones for me because 
Um, obviously, as Australians, we're hugely competitive and we're participating at a, at a World Cup level where uh, you're wearing your, your country's colours. But at the same time, you also have to take into account uh, risk um, and any risk to the individual or to the organisation, to the brand and all that sort of thing. Um, but you also want to reward those that have been showing the best attitude and commitment. Yep. Um, you want a you know, range of diversity in the team, so you've got team dynamics and you've got leadership and you've got different personalities that can contribute. Uh, and you're representing your country, so you want to do that with distinction and you want people to see Australians in the best possible light. So within our team, you know, we'll have players that, as I said, are highly skilled. Um, just that it, I guess it'll really in some ways, mirror what our program's about. Mm. Highly skilled players, but also players who are just starting off. And um, That's a you know a challenge at a, a weekly level, and it's even a greater challenge in some way to get them to perform and to work together at a homeless World Cup. But, you know, we've done it ten times, and, and it's pretty awesome. We've had some success from our perspective, um, and the, the players have really stepped up and have been better footballers, but more importantly, better people as a result of that experience. Mm. What's what would you say has been your you know your best memory throughout this journey you know at a World Cup or, or otherwise? Oh, I've got lots of great memories. Having been to ten, I'm pretty fortunate to have represented my country in a, in a different way. In mm. 2008, uh, the Homeless World Cup was in Melbourne at Federation Square, and um, for me that was a pretty special moment to see you know tens of thousands of people turn up throughout the week. And um, I remember the last day. Um, and there was coverage from SBS and, and Les Murray and Craig Foster were there covering the final between Afghanistan and Russia. Um, and just to see so many people come to see homeless people and disadvantaged people in a different light. Uh, it was a you know beautiful spring day, I believe, and, and blue skies. There's an iconic photo that, that's gone around from, from that last day. Um, but for me to share that homeless World Cup experience with my family and friends who'd heard about it but not really understood it. Um, so having it in our backyard in Melbourne in 2008 was pretty special. But um, some other memories, I guess, we've been fortunate to win um, what's called the Fair Play Award on several occasions. Um, and so that's a team that, you know, probably is, you know, espouses a true ethos of participation and fair play. So, mm. you know, that's, that's uh, some silverware there. Yeah. Last year, uh, well, last year we, we got the um, what did we receive? The best coaching team award. So that was a, a nice honour as well. So, but many personal moments and highlights that I reminisce and reflect on, and um, pretty special moments to, to share with our players and to share with people from all over the world. Yeah, wow, lots to be proud of. Can't blame you either. I guess a lot of these uh, latter questions I've been asking are more around, you know, the last couple of years, the evolution of it. Uh, I guess almost mm. to, to to wrap up because I've been so grateful for the information that you've you've shared, some amazing stories. What does uh, I guess I want to I want to understand what does the future look like for for your program, but also the future for um, how amateur clubs can potentially play a role even with quite thin resources are there, are there small things that that they can do to be more inclusive of the homeless community um and yeah. and right up to the a-league level so I, I guess starting with with yourselves what what comes next for for you guys do you think well i think for us is to continue what we're doing and, and keep growing 
Um, we're about to expand in a few other locations across uh, some of the uh, cities, which is really awesome. We've got that support from the federal government. So it's really about refining our model, um, making sure that we continue to have an impact, uh, making sure our coaches are armed and skilled enough to do that. So there is a bit of growth happening, probably another six to eight programs, which um, is fantastic for us to see that growth. Um, and to work more with the community, I mean, you, there's probably different ways that we can do that. Um, we invite different groups to come down and participate. It's not just a, you know, a session that's exclusive to people experiencing homelessness because that defeats the purpose. Inclusion, and, and we're able to do it so very well, is to try and bring in so many people from different walks of life. So, you know, if it is for someone in the community who wants to come volunteer or just come down and play and interact and share a couple of hours of football with uh, our group, that means a lot to our players because it breaks down stereotypes. Um, it makes them feel part of the broader community and they're not ostracised. So people can do that in a range of ways by connecting. Um, you know, I know that some of the clubs, local clubs, often at the end of the season have kit and equipment that they don't use and they can share that. Our players would be more than willing to, to wear some, um, some new tops, that sort of stuff. Um, sometimes we run events and people can get involved in the same way. Um, similarly, I guess, for clubs to be more inclusive is just to understand that um, people in the community come with different backgrounds, different personalities, different challenges in their lives. Some might not even present, you know, it's Are You OK Day today, for example, and, yeah. you know, we know the um, challenges of mental illness. And just to understand that there are barriers for people to participate in sport and to think about making their club and their environment more inclusive and more welcoming. Um, diversity, you know, is a richness that their club could just enjoy, just like ours. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll call ourselves a club, but, you know, the, the greater the diversity, the more the learning, um, the, the richness of, of, of a club, I think, um, is there to be seen. So for clubs just to have that open-mindedness, I think, is the key, um, and not be afraid to try new things. Um, think about how they can help their... Um, footballers and their participants and their juniors, not just from a football perspective also, but as people and to help grow. So not dissimilar to us, and that might be disseminating information or, you know, um, reaching out to them and trying to connect. We know that, you know, during this pandemic, for example, some clubs, we haven't kicked the football yet this season. Yeah. But at the same time, irrespective, we've been able to use our connections. We've been able to support each other through this time. We've been able to feel connected and feel supported by each other. So to realise that clubs are much more than the ball, even though we love the game so much, and clubs can think about the social impact they can have by, um, you know, creating those linkages, being, you know, drivers of cultural change, um, you know, sharing information about, you know, different things that are happening in the world and how they can learn from each other. So, I mean, probably that's a, a bit of a broader sort of snapshot, but for me... Uh, you know, whether it's a street soccer program or, you know, a club out there in clubland, um, all we are are communities. Uh, um, the communities are, are really more than just the sport. It's really about the connection, the support, the belonging, uh, the purpose, uh, the sharing and the learning. Um, and so I think, you know, we're trying to sort of, after this pandemic, reshape sport a little bit and think about how... Our clubs are more about communities and what the communities need to strengthen and how can we enrich them. And so there's probably a, a lesson there to reflect on how we can do that. And um, perhaps 
our program, if I can be modest, can share some learnings along those lines about its diversity, about its skill set, um, and about what it wants to achieve, and perhaps other clubs want to sort of join that sort of approach and that ethos. Yeah, I'm certainly seeing that with a couple of clubs I've been involved in currently in, in the past um, in Australia, that you know now is a chance whilst we're not consumed with planning coaching sessions and who's taking who in the car and things like that around yeah how we can still support each other off the field um, and many of the you know amateur clubs and organizations that I follow today as you mentioned with it being are you okay day um, are putting you know mm. such posts up and I've seen a lot more of that through people's social media across the last few months in absence of you know yep. focusing on on playing content and um, that has been one of the probably silver linings of the pandemic isn't it that that sort of empathy uh, within the community has, has increased a little bit and yeah long may that continue when we get back to what what we were doing before and uh, within our sport as well because yeah it, it, it does make a does make a huge difference good stuff yeah great fantastic well yeah thank you so much some amazing stories um, you know I can think about some of the things I've been involved in that I'm super proud of through my footballing career um, and I can only imagine you know some of the it's two-sided when you do something uh, like what you guys do mm. yes there's pride there but there's always that um, enjoyment that comes because of what others are, are, are getting from it usually that's where the, the 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 sense of pride and accomplishment comes from with with such programs I can only imagine you being full to the brim you know on the on the plane yeah. flying to a world cup experience in that and um, yeah some happy memories to be proud of no doubt definitely i mean i've been very lucky as i said uh, i obviously have a background in psychology and want to work in community and make a difference but i'm also a passionate football lover and football fan and coach and to marry them up i've been very fortunate um so yeah yes when you when you think about some of my learnings i, I just get a, a great sense of perspective in life as well from the players but they also inspire me from their courage and determination um, and I really have a gratitude for the things that I have in life. But I also know that the power of, you know, people to overcome adversity. So quite often homeless and disadvantaged people, people will look at them on the street in a, in a negative light or perhaps some of those stereotypes that we're hopefully eroding. Um, we can overcome and we can see that, you know, people, when they're given opportunity, when they're given a chance in life, they can turn things around. And I've seen that in our program. And, I'm hoping that others are slowly but surely changing that perception as well. Wow. 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 I spoke before the interview of being the owner of that story, of taking your nation to a World Cup for a sport you love. These people have this because they can look past differences. The awkwardness I spoke about earlier that we might feel about engaging with and having a conversation with a homeless person, it often says more about us than it does about the man or woman on the streets. Now, let me just give you some numbers here to put this whole thing into context because the Street Soccer Initiative can't help and reach every homeless person. In Australia, where I'm recording this podcast from, rough sleepers are about 7% of the homeless population. That means that there are a lot more people that are homeless than just those that we see on the street. That's the tip of the iceberg. The biggest growing bracket of homeless people is in the age range 55 plus. And imagine how your social circle reduces as life goes on, from literally hundreds of connections at school to a smaller handful in a lot of cases, 
of just your trusted and close friends. At 55 plus, your social circle might be acquaintances down the pub and a vulnerable person might not share the financial distress, for example, with others, suffer silently and potentially end up on the streets. It's easy to see how that could happen. The average panhandler, as um, it's sometimes known to be homeless in the US, makes about 15 quid a day in San Francisco where a study was conducted. So that immediately dispels the myth that homeless people are racking up tax-free fortunes. It's simply not the case. Again, in San Francisco, the drug and alcohol dependence uh, does exist, but it's a lot lower than you might think, about 26% for drugs and 38% of alcohol. Certainly not every homeless person is on drugs and every homeless person is on alcohol, and that's where the money goes. 95% of money someone on the streets receives is also used for basic supplies and food. That is where the majority of the money goes. And just look at the UK and the rising use of food banks if you want a measure of how more people are sliding into poverty. And it's been a really sort of prominent topic this year, especially with the work that Marcus Rashford uh, has been doing. And he's told his story of you know having to lean on food banks and school dinners and things like that. And it is becoming a bigger and bigger issue as time goes by there. Now, if you can't have that awkward conversation to provide a homeless person with some human interaction, give them a bit more meaning, joy and compassion to the day, then there are literally hundreds of other things that you can do. And I'm just going to give you a few here. First of all, buy the big issue for one. And this isn't a plug. This isn't like a paid podcast or anything like that. I buy it from time to time and there's decent content in there. And I think we've got used to all this free content that we're force fed, um, that we won't pay for anything written anymore and actually most of the stuff that we're force fed is force fed to us by social media because we're data points for companies to advertise to not because they want to gift us all of this free information quite the opposite so spend a couple of quid buy the big issue give to a food bank donate to charity shops shop at charity shops volunteer a day at charity shops there's four things that are pretty straightforward and if you're a small business and you want to sponsor something or don't donate to a cause then donate to a homeless charity or donate to a local sports club and say that you want to start an initiative for homeless people, maybe. And if you're in Melbourne especially, as George says, then get in touch with the big issue, obviously when restrictions lift and social distancing uh, is hopefully a thing of the past. Go down and have a kick about, because as George says, it's all about bringing these barriers down and interacting right across the community spectrum. These last few weeks here, I've been tidying myself over doing some distanced one-on-one training with a mate. The days are getting a bit longer now, which is nice, though the weather, it's not quite as warm as I'd like it to be, but uh, I won't complain, it's heading the right direction. It has been the best that we can get in terms of football and playing football with a lockdown that's spanned across four different months, and this week, those lockdown restrictions finally started to ease. Now, the reason why I say this is because of the uncertainty these weeks and months of socialisation have caused right across the the Metro Melbourne, Metro Melbourne community. There's around about 6 million people in Melbourne, so it's a big number for not a lot of cases, but here we are. Now, safety, of course, is paramount, and whilst the government package in Victoria provides shelter to homeless people until April next year, more and more jobs are being lost, and the path back to work uh, and sound income coming in for people for many is getting longer not shorter. And this is in a part of the world where the local government can write a cheque for $150 million to try and help with that problem. But of course, it's a massive problem to begin with. And as I said earlier on, it's a problem that's going to be here long after COVID. Now, by contrast to the UK, 
where, as I mentioned at the start, Marcus Rashford, where a footballer is leading the charge for kids not to go hungry this half-term, where local councils are finding a way to feed kids because the national government can't. As fantastic as this is, and not to suggest anyone's efforts here should be diverted elsewhere because obviously those kids need feeding, um, especially those beneath the poverty line, but homeless people, you know, in some instances, really don't stand a chance. You know, consider America for a moment, as we touched on earlier, where there's a really weak healthcare system. And if you're sick, it's a toss-up between paying the rent and paying your medical bills. It puts you in a really difficult, difficult spot. I'm also seeing footballs really getting behind food banks at the moment, which is fantastic. See it all over social media, see football clubs supporting it. But as George said in the interview, when you get the chance, you know, that sort of social interaction and bring it down the barriers that's really where you can you know add some value and help so as and when you're permitted to do that give it some thought and give it some consideration now thanks for joining us this week really appreciate you giving the pod a go big thanks also to the big issue here in australia marie who helped facilitate the interview with george of course george himself if you do get the chance please leave us a review not so much for me uh, in fact not at all for me to be honest um, i'm quite passionate about the topics in the series um, and if you're, you're not sure what's coming up in the next couple of episodes go back over the intro episode from last week i'll really fill you in on what the whole podcast series is about why i've done it um, but i really want to promote the topics that we're discussing that we're discussing so anything you can do to help massively appreciated uh, this has been Concourse, recorded at my makeshift home studio in Elwood, Melbourne, on the traditional land of the Boonborn people. Thanks again, and see you next time.